Welcome, friends, to our second week in our five-week study of 1 Peter through St. Luke's United Methodist and through the Candler Foundry. Uh, once again, my name is Chris Holmes. I serve as the scholar-in-residence at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, and it is a pleasure to be talking with you again about 1 Peter. It was wonderful to meet a number of you in our Zoom session last week, and I'm looking forward to uh, interacting with you in the future, and I'm hopeful uh, that your time in personal study, as well as in small groups, has been enriching, encouraging, and edifying. This week, we turn our focus to 1 Peter uh, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. And the sermon focus related to this text is on love. And I'll say more about love near the end of this lecture. So I want to do three things in this lecture uh, before providing some reflection questions. The first is I want to answer the question, how did we get here? How do we get to this passage, these verses, what precedes it, what follows it, a little bit of the literary context. Then I want to approach the text. I want to say something about the text as a whole and its structure. Thirdly, I want to take a deeper dive into a few of the ideas, including love, that we find in this passage. And then, as I mentioned, I'll conclude with some reflection questions for further uh, discussion or even just your own personal journaling or thinking. So first, how did we get here? This passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 23, is really in the very first passage in the main body of the letter. Our passage, verses 17 through 23, is a part of a slightly larger passage uh, that starts in verse 13 and runs all the way through verse 25. So we've sort of got the middle two-thirds of this larger passage. Verse 13 opens with the word, therefore, which marks a transition rhetorically and thematically. The main verb in verse 13 is an imperative. It says, set your hope completely on the grace that, will, that, that, that Jesus Christ will bring when he is revealed. And so the, this whole uh, opening uh, few sentences uh, put an emphasis on, on mental preparation and discipline that is oriented towards that future revelation of Jesus. Again, we talked in week one about the importance of hope and the sort of eschatological orientation, and we see it here again. The next main verb is in verse 15. It's also an imperative, and it says, Be holy in all your conduct. So verse 16 builds on that imperative, citing Leviticus 19.2 as the motivation for holy living. This communal identity, this communal vocation towards holiness echoes the original vocation to Israel. And in many ways, we can think about this, um, this uh, expansion that, that the, the Gentile community has now been included in God's original plans, God's original intentions for the holy people of Israel to be a set apart, a different, a distinguished people. And, and then, uh, so all of verses 13 through 16 really set a tone um, of in, intentional, even urgent action that is based both in hope 
and holy living that is based in God's character, right? So both are deeply theological. So live in a, in a particular way and, and, uh, and, and hope in a particular way. Uh, so that's the, the, the part that comes immediately before our passage. And right after our passage are verses 24 and 25. And most of this is a quotation from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. Um, and this passage or these words build on the mention of the word of God in verse 23. And the, the quotation then offers uh, something like a confirmation of what is said in verse 23. And ultimately, it emphasizes the reliability of God's powerful word. In verse 23, spoiler alert, uh, is that God's word has, has facilitated or, or led to the rebirth or the rebegetting of the Christian community. And therefore, that new birth is, is uh, dependent and uh, uh, focuses on the reliability of God's word. So I said just a little bit about the, the bit that comes before our passage and the bit that comes after our passage, and now I want to focus on our passage itself. And there are, I would say, two, probably three parts to the passage. Um, verse 17 uh, continues the thought that we see in verse 13 about obedient children. So verse 13 talks about because you are obedient children, live in this sort of way. And verse 17 continues that logic, that way of thinking, um, by uh, referencing God as father, God as parent. Um, and so the first part uh, in verse 13 is about uh, no longer being conformed to desires. Um, and then the second part that we see in verse 17 is this po more positive command to live in reverent fear. Then in verses 18 through 21, we have a long and elaborate clause that explores the nature of Christian redemption, Christ's role in it, God's role in it, and, and the overall impact or consequence that it has for the Christian community. And this redemption, this process, this activity of God provides the rationale for living in reverent fear. The use of a participle um, in verse 18 has led some interpreters to think that this is um, uh, possibly a Christian hymn or, or a borrowing of earlier Christian tradition. And the word itself that the participle is, is being used, no uh, is, the, is the word in English, um, is often used to describe elementary Christian belief. And so it, it seems as though the author is almost rehearsing what his audience should know um, about Christian redemption in order to sort of make the point. And then in verse 22 um, and 23, we have this, um, this command to love. We have another imperative um, uh, about loving one another, and there's all of these modifiers on that command to love that I'll say a little bit more uh, in just a few moments. So three main parts in our passage today. Finally, let's take a bit of a deeper dive into 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 17 through 23. 
I want to talk about four parts of our passage. The first is on the God who judges impartially in verse 17. The second is about living in reverent fear in verse 17. Uh, a, a discussion on ransom or redemption in verses 18 through 19. And then a discussion finally of love in verse 22. So to begin with verse 17, I'm going to focus on uh, two aspects of verse 17. First, this idea of the God who judges impartially. Um, the, the author says, if you invoke, and, and the Greek word here almost has a legal sense to it. If you, um, if you summon, if you are calling as your representative, God who you call Father, um, then you need to live in a particular way. Um, and really the emphasis here is on God's impartiality in judgment. Um, this means that God can't be bought, can't be bribed in a, in a sort of legal sense. Um, but it's also uh, a reminder that the Christians, believers, can't presume God's grace and that God doesn't play favorites, but that God judges righteously, God judges impartially, God is trustworthy, and God is just, I would say, are sort of the implications of this. And we see in the beginnings of verse 17, what I would say is almost a tension um, between two views of God that are being held together. On the one hand, we have this more intimate view of God as a parent, God as a father. And then we have this uh, image of God as an impartial judge of the world. And I think that First Peter and probably much of Christian tradition invites us to hold these in tension with one another, right? We can falter on either side, and by holding them together, we, we probably have a more adequate understanding of who God is. The second thing I want to point out is, again, in verse 17, it has to do with living in reverent fear, verse 17. Um, and uh, the, the first thing that we should point out is, what is meant by reverent fear? The Greek word here is Phobos, uh, or phobos, which we, we get um, a number of words uh, in English. Phobia is based on this Greek word. Um, but I, I think it's important that this uh, sense, uh, particularly when it's applied to God, is, is not a, you know, it's not superstition. It's not like a, a, an irrational fear of perhaps spiders or small spaces. It is rather a, uh, a sense of awe or reverence. It's, it's really not a terror of d divine judgment. You're not fearing God because God has a big stick. You are living appropriately. You're living reverentially in, in, in the sight of God. And in the context of verse 17, um, this is really in contrast to a vain and foolish way of life that was a part of their existence before. And I, I love that contrast, right? Do we, do we live our lives reverentially or do we live them foolishly? Do we live them in vanity? Um, and that's, that really opens up this text, I think, in, in interesting and important ways. The third thing I want to go a bit deeper in is the concept of redemption or ransom that we see in verses 18 through 19. The Greek word here is lutrao. Um, it, it has um, a, a number of senses. It, it can refer to the, 
the ransom of prisoners of war, so the literal pain um, to, to get back prisoners of war from their captivity in war. Um, it can also mean the manumission of slaves. And so the word in its nature has an economic and a political sense to it, also a martial sense to it as well. Um, in the Old Testament, it can refer to Israel's uh, deliverance by God from their bondage in Egypt. And perhaps all of these uh, meanings are in, in view here in 1 Peter. Um, the author makes this contrast about the means of ransoming, the means of redeeming. Um, uh, on the one hand, it's, it doesn't come through gold and silver, which really reinforces the economic context, whether that is uh, buying back prisoners of war or manumitting a slave, buying a slave's freedom. Um, but then uh, the, the, the contrast is with the blood of Jesus. Um, and we have this, this uh, common distinction between the perishable and the imperishable that we've seen earlier. But the reference to the blood of Christ is, is probably best understood in the background of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. And really what's important for us to see is it's not redemption from human sin. It's not redemption from guilt. It's not redemption from God's wrath. Rather, the context suggests it is, it is redemption from a former way of life. It is redemption from a way of life that was foolish and prone to vanity. Um, and so the, the idea here then is that Christ's life, this sacrificial life, is, is, is the means by which God redeems humanity, by the, by the means by which God ransoms humanity from its imprisonment to this way of life, or manumits them uh, from that slavery to that old way of life. Um, and we see similar ideas, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6.20, where Paul says that you were bought with a price. Um, and of course, that price is, is uh, interpreted uh, as the death of Jesus. And there are a number of ways of understanding the atonement, the, the, the sort of significance of the death of Jesus. But I think it's really important to reemphasize here that in 1 Peter 1, um, it is not redemption from, uh, from sin, it's not redemption from guilt, but it's, it's redemption from a former way of life. It's being plucked out of that way of life. And the death of Jesus is the, the means by which that happens, uh, and that God ultimately is the actor behind. God is the one who is doing this. And I think it's important to point out that in verse 21, uh, the author reminds us again that this was destined before the foundation of the world. Um, it, it, it's not a backup plan. It didn't come uh, at, at, you know, at, at last resort. But instead, um, it's always been in the plan. It's always been in the playbook. It has just most recently been revealed, according to verse 21. The final thing that I want to talk about in this passage is on love in verse 22. And there are two basic um, uh, commands, if you will, to love. One is um, that they might have mutual love. We see that. And then there's also this phrase to love one another deeply from the heart. And in the first place, love, uh, a genuine mutual love. Mutual love is the Greek word Philadelphia. That the city of brotherly love, you know, is based on this Greek word. Um, and it is, according to many commentators, love especially for members of the Christian community. It is love for other siblings in Christ, for this fictive 
family relationship that baptism uh, represents. You're baptized into the family of God. And so this love, this Philadelphia, is love for the philos, for the family. It's, it's love for this new Christian family. And the author uh, modifies that and says, let it be genuine, or we might say sincere. It is the opposite of hypocritical or fake or showy love. It's sincere, it's genuine love, uh, genuine love for the community. And then the, the second part of this verse is about loving one another deeply from the heart. Um, again, loving one another suggests this reciprocal relationship among early Christians. Uh, the author in verse 22 is really focused on loving people in the community, loving members of the Christian community. And then the modifier, from the heart, um, is really about the, the seat of the human person. It's the core. It's, it's saying, let all of your actions, all of your behaviors, your general being in the world, be motivated by this love for one another. Act out of this love for one another. Live out of this love for one another. And then uh, deeply, the, the final modifier um, has, has something to do about the constancy of love and love's unwavering character. So it may not necessarily talk about the strength or the power of the love, but the longevity of it, the consistency of it, the, the long-standing nature of love. So again, in verse 22, we see um, three important modifiers to the, the manner of Christian love. This, this mutual love for other Christians is to do so sincerely um, or without hypocrisy, uh, to do it from the heart, from the deep core, from the center of one's being, and then deeply um, lasting, enduring uh, in one's love. Let me conclude this lecture with just three questions for your further reflection. The first is, what does it look like to live in reverent fear of God? And how does that idea relate to viewing God more intimately as a parent? The second is, why do you think it is so difficult to love other members of the Christian community? Or why can it be so difficult to love other members of the community? And which of those modifiers that I mentioned earlier, sincerely, from the heart, and deeply, which of those modifiers do you think is most difficult to put into, into practice? Which is least likely to characterize the way you love others? And then my third question is, is more sort of considering our 21st century context. Should the exhortation in verse 22 to love each other, to really love only members of the community in the, the context of 1 Peter, should it still be confined to members of the Christian community in our 21st century context? Why do you think uh, that should be the case or why do you think it should not be the case? Friends, thank you for your time and your attention. As I said at the beginning, I hope that this lecture and your study of 1 Peter is, is edifying, encouraging, and uplifting. All the best to you and your studies.